0: The 2020 election and its lead-up have not exactly been your run-of-the-mill election season. American elections often face various challenges, but this year, that list of challenges is quite long. First, the world is still in the middle of a pandemic. That's meant that many states have ramped up mail-in voting or added ballot drop boxes or laid out plans for safety measures around in-person voting. But those pivots and new plans have meant some errors and some mix-ups along the way. And some of these voting changes have faced legal challenges. Plus, this week, as early voting has ramped up around the country, voters have endured long lines, hours and hours of waiting, and even some technical delays. Keeping track of all of these voting issues, all of the stories from around the country about the challenges our electoral system faces this time around can seem pretty impossible. And understanding which of these pieces matter most to the outcome of the election can be even harder. That's where we come in. On this episode, we'll cover the election-related legal battles likely to have the biggest impacts. We'll cover efforts to mislead voters. We'll discuss the mistakes and errors that we've seen around the country. And we'll take a look at new voting issues that could come up as Election Day gets closer. And as the Senate moves to confirm a new Supreme Court justice, one appointed in the final weeks before Election Day by a candidate on the ballot, we'll find out what scenarios could lead the Supreme Court to be involved in the outcome of the 2020 election. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Alison Michaels. The Washington Post has a team of reporters dedicated to covering voting issues around the country throughout the lead up to election day and in the weeks and months that follow. Amy Gardner is a reporter on that team who has spent months deep in this reporting on our electoral system and the tests it faces in 2020. I talked to her for today's episode. So let's start, Amy, with early voting issues. Early voting has begun in several states. Turnout's been pretty high. But particularly in two states, in Texas and in Georgia, we've seen long lines and delays. Let's start with Georgia. What's been happening there? What have we seen in regards to early voting so far?
1: So early voting started in Georgia on Monday, and it started with a bang. There were people lined up at 5 a.m., and the lines never went away in some places. There were voters who we spoke to who stood in line for 11 hours to vote. What's interesting about this is that there was a lot of talk throughout the day on Twitter and elsewhere that this was voter suppression, that nobody should have to stand in line for six hours. And what did you know the Republicans who control state government in Georgia do to make this happen. And that's not quite the full picture. The fuller picture is one of an electorate that is incredibly motivated to vote. The folks who turned out on day one and day two in Georgia disproportionately included African-Americans and women compared to how they're represented in the electorate overall. And We interviewed people over and over and over again who said, I wanted to come out on the first day. I wanted to have my voice heard. I was determined to do it at the first available moment. So that's sort of the basic portrait of what happened in Georgia.
0: Do we have any other insight into the causes of these long lines and delays in Georgia?
1: A really great story was published in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution last night about how there were some technical computer equipment related reasons for the delays that the officials did not tell us about on Monday night. And that is that these poll books that are used to check voters in were slow because there was such a high turnout. These poll books in every voting location across Georgia were plugging into the same computer system. It slowed the whole system down. So it was taking poll workers something like 10, 15 minutes per voter to just check them in. And that is a problem. And now that they know that that's a problem, they're working on it and hopefully they can resolve it because voter turnout is expected to get even stronger as the final days of early voting uh, approach.
0: So there were these long lines, some technical errors. What were Georgia election officials doing to prepare for this election? Was there anything that could have been done to reduce these wait times or reduce some of what we saw in Georgia?
1: Well, now that we know that there was this technical problem with the electronic poll books that are used to check voters in when they arrive at a location to vote, certainly some important questions need to be asked that I don't know the answer to yet. But were those poll books stress test when you're going to have a really heavy use of a website or a web-based application or database, you test it ahead of time. And the question is, did they do that in Georgia? Did they stress test the system? And I think that's a really important question that the Secretary of State and the county election officials are going to have to ask and answer.
0: Now in June Georgia's Secretary of State called for legislation that would have expanded polling locations and trained more poll workers to minimize some of these long lines. So that's not the technical piece of it, but there was an effort to perhaps minimize some of these long lines back in June. Why didn't that legislation pass?
1: So the Secretary of State is a Republican named Brad Raffensperger and Secretary Raffensperger has had a fraught relationship with the Republican-controlled legislature in Georgia. When he announced before the primary in Georgia this year that he was going to send an application for a mail ballot to every active registered voter in the state, the Speaker of the House, uh, a Republican in Georgia, David Ralston, was angry and made it known publicly that he thought that was not something that should be done. And Raffensperger has actually charted his own course in terms of really wanting to signal to voters of both parties that his goal is to allow every voter to vote. And that's a little bit of a divergence from some of the politics that we've seen around voting in Georgia in the past. So did the legislature deny Raffensperger's request for more funding for more polling locations for political reasons. They will probably say no, it was for other reasons that had to do with finances. But certainly it's an open question. And there's been a lot of criticism from the left in particular that the Republican House did not want to expand polling locations because that would benefit
0: Democrats. Another state that began early voting this week is Texas, but voters in that state have had to contend with some legal complications that have restricted voters' options. What have election-related legal battles looked like over in Texas?
1: So the highest profile issue that's unfolded in Texas is that Governor Greg Abbott, also a Republican, issued a proclamation that allowed counties to provide a drop-off location for mail ballots. Previously, state law did not allow for drop-off of mail ballots except for on election day. So you either could put them in the mail or you could drop them on election day at your polling location, or you could vote in person on election day or early in person as the rules allow. And so he issued that proclamation. It was one of four, I believe, different proclamations that he issued changing some of the rules around elections in Texas to accommodate the coronavirus. He also extended early voting by six days and marketed his actions as an expansion of voting access. But the counties wanted to offer multiple drop-off locations. There are some really big counties in Texas. In Harris County, you could have a two-hour drive to drop off your ballot, and the election supervisor there wanted more. But Abbott said no, only one. So civil rights advocates sued, and a federal judge ruled, yes, counties should be allowed to offer multiple drop-off locations. But then the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed that decision and said, no, Governor Abbott's proclamation is an expansion of voting access. And it's the state's right to set the rules of the election, not a federal judges. So that's where we are. There's been a notice of appeal, which means that it's probably going to be appealed to either the full court of appeals instead of just the three judge panel that made that decision. But it might also go to the Supreme Court, which will be interesting.
0: So there's a lot of contention going on in Texas. But of course, it's not the only state-facing election-related legal battles. Is there a lawsuit elsewhere in the country that stands out to you as potentially very consequential or particularly significant? To my mind,
1: one of the most consequential lawsuits was one that was just recently decided in Pennsylvania. The Trump campaign and Republican National Committee had sued the secretary of state there, a Democrat named Kathy Bukvar, over some rules that they wanted to be enforced differently. They wanted to allow out-of-county poll watchers to sign up as registered poll watchers for Republican candidates in counties where they don't live. Uh, Under state law in Pennsylvania, you have to live in the county. And they argued that they had a really hard time finding poll watchers in very heavily Democratic places like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. But the Democrats argued they want to send people in to intimidate and we don't want this. That lawsuit ruled against Republicans who wanted these out-of-county poll watchers to be allowed to sign up to watch at the polls in counties where they don't live. The lawsuit sought to block the use of drop boxes as receptacles for mail ballots, and it also sought to require ballot signatures to match voter registration records. And the judge said no to all of it. Big, big victory for the Democrats. The judge's opinion was so decisive. He basically said you've presented no evidence of voter fraud, which is your reason for wanting these rules. The legal experts who study these issues much more closely than I do said that they see very little opportunity for an appeal in that case. It's a really big win for Democrats in Pennsylvania.
0: The Democrats, it turns out, have actually seen a lot of wins in voting-related legal battles like this one. A review by Elise vbeck who's one of the reporters on the voting issues team with you, looked at nearly 90 state and federal voting lawsuits and found that in none of these cases, in no case, did a judge back the view that voter fraud is a problem significant enough to sway a presidential election. And battleground states for the 2020 presidential race, like the state of Michigan have seen voting rules challenged not only in the courtroom, but also within their own legislatures. What have we seen from the legislature in Michigan?
1: In Michigan, Democrats also scored a victory because the state law does not allow ballots to be processed before Election Day morning. That's true also in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Remember, these are the three states that literally decided the election for President Trump in 2016. So if all three of those states weren't allowed to start processing mail ballots until election morning, there would just be this enormous possibility that we wouldn't know the result for a long time. But Democrats succeeded in the legislature in Michigan to move up that date, not so in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania. So those are states where we don't expect to have a result right away on election night. Although I should say, That all depends on how close the margins are state by state, whether we know what's going to happen on election night really depends on where the race is close and what the counting rules are in that state. So it's like this game of algorithm, like if then, whether we'll know a result on election night.
0: So we've seen long lines, we've seen legal battles, and yet there's more. In California, the state Republican Party was just found to have set up unauthorized ballot drop-off boxes. What are those boxes intended to do? And, And are they legal or is this allowed, at least in the state of California?
1: So it's an interesting question and there's a dispute over the legality of it. In California. Ballot collection is legal. It's also known as ballot harvesting. That's a dirty word for it. Harvesting or collection of ballots is when third parties are allowed to collect mail ballots and drop them off in bulk. And in California, it's legal. And Democrats have been very good at ballot collection in California for a long time. They literally have these ballot chase programs where they send either volunteers or paid workers out to collect people's mail ballots and turn them in. So Republicans, while arguing publicly that ballot harvesting should be illegal in California, have been saying and strategizing privately since 2018 that they need to get competitive. While the rules are the rules, they should be allowed to play by the rules, even though they don't agree with them. That's their argument. So I wrote a story back in 2018 when Democrats won a bunch of Republican-held congressional seats in California about how Republicans felt like ballot harvesting and potentials for irregularities and even fraud were the reason that Democrats had won those races. But at the same time, they were strategizing privately to figure out how to get good at ballot harvesting themselves. Mm. So fast forward to 2020, and they set up these boxes to collect ballots and ballot collection is legal in California where it's not clear that they are allowed to do what they did is really in the margins of, the nitty gritty rules, like they have some signage on the ballot boxes that make them look official. And so the secretary of state is arguing that that is fraudulent or misleading and therefore not allowed. But the Republicans have signaled that they're going to do it anyway. And I won't be surprised if it winds up having to be settled in court.
0: Have you seen attempts to intentionally mislead voters or scams that you've encountered while you're covering this issue?
1: You know, you see dirty tricks every election cycle. You see mail pieces sent to Black voters in Detroit telling them that the deadline to get their ballot in is X when it's really Y. And we've seen some examples of that where groups are putting out misinformation intentionally to disenfranchise voters. But those things happen every year and they typically get discovered pretty quickly and shut down.
0: So as if delays and legal issues and voting scams are not enough, we've also seen another challenge this election season, which is a whole bunch of errors and mix-ups related mostly to mail-in ballots. There have been reports of ballots being sent with incorrect return envelopes or ballots with incorrect information on them. How common are these errors and are we seeing them more this time around?
1: it's really impossible to judge how common they are because so many states have had to ratchet up their mail ballot programs for the first time this year because of the coronavirus pandemic. So if you look at a state like Georgia or North Carolina, their mail ballot participation in prior election years was incredibly low. The Georgia electorate, the North Carolina electorate don't like to vote by mail. Florida, Arizona, Colorado, Oregon, Washington, very robust mail ballot programs. Voters like to use it. They've been using it for a while. So in those states where mail balloting was rare and not used often, even if it was allowed, state and local election officials have had to ramp up at warp speed. And so of course errors were gonna happen. These are not insignificant errors and I'm not suggesting that they're normal. Any error that prevents a voter from casting a ballot is a problem. But errors do happen in elections. And the question is what they're doing to fix the errors, particularly when they affect thousands of voters, as we have seen in some of these reports, ballots going out without the Senate race on it in the state or without the presidential race on it. I mean, that's obviously a fatal flaw for a ballot. And the question is how they're fixing them and whether they will be able to fix them in time.
0: As I've watched this election unfold, the legal challenges, a few ballot errors, a lot of voting hurdles taken together, it strikes me that this could really potentially undermine American faith in this election, are secretaries of state or other officials across the country taking any particular steps to ensure a perception of legitimacy in this election?
1: That's a really good question. And the answer is yes. And so are public elected officials saying very forthrightly that our election systems are safe. Please feel comfortable voting. Our mail ballot systems are safe. We do not have widespread fraud. We never have. There is zero evidence for this. But it's a really difficult argument because of how much information is flying out there. You have President Trump saying virtually every day that mail ballot is fraudulent, that the Democrats are going to steal the election. Those are two false statements. And so that's really hard to combat. You have Republicans who have listened to President Trump and who aren't voting by mail because of Trump's rhetoric. In Florida, for instance, Republicans used to be the ones who voted more often by mail, not this year. And that's attributed largely to President Trump's rhetoric. But Democrats have lost some of their faith, too. There were all those headlines over the summer about the Postal Service and whether it was being intentionally undermined to slow down ballots. That was after we already had a sense that Democrats were more likely to vote by mail than Republicans. So a Republican administration talking about defunding the post office or slowing down service made a lot of people suspicious that that was intentional. And that, by the way, is one of the forces I think at work in these long lines with early voting as early voting launches in states across the country. I think we've got 20 starting in the next week. And these long lines are at least in part populated by voters who had planned to vote by mail and who got cold feet for a variety of reasons. Some of them got worried about whether their vote would make it back. And some of them wanted to make a statement, just get out there and say, I'm voting and I want the world to know I'm voting at the first opportunity and I want President Trump to know I'm willing to stand in line for eight hours. It's a wild landscape out there is the bottom line.
0: So I want to wrap this by asking you about a moment from Capitol Hill this week. During confirmation hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett, several senators asked if she would recuse herself from cases involving the election if they rise to the level of the Supreme Court. I think her quote was she wouldn't be used as a pawn to decide the will of the American people. What role could the Supreme Court play in the outcome of this election?
1: So let's say the race is really close in a state that is poised to decide who gets to 270 electoral votes. And let's say it's Pennsylvania, because that's really the one that's likeliest to be the deciding state. And... The mail ballots are trickling in because they have a couple of days after the November 3rd election date to get their ballots in. And you're going to have poll watchers scrutinizing the opening of those ballot envelopes, the checking of the information on them, whether they have the proper security envelope on the outside, the so-called naked ballot. And let's say the Republican poll watchers say, I don't think that any of these ballots that look like this should be counted. And the Democrats say, no, I think they should. They're going to go to court. They're going to go to court to decide whether ballots that have no postmark, for instance, get counted. And I could easily see that making it all the way to the Supreme Court. The other possibility is that there isn't a completed count and a certified election in a place like Pennsylvania by the date when the Electoral College has to meet and vote. Each state's electors have to meet and vote on December 14th. Let's say there's not a count. And let's say the Republican legislature in Pennsylvania says, that's it. We're calling this election and we're appointing our own electors. And there is some federal law that gives them the right potentially to do that. But I guarantee you the Democrats and the Biden campaign would sue. And that also could wind up in front of the Supreme Court.
0: What are you and the rest of our voting issues reporting team watching most closely as we head towards Election Day? Are there new challenges that will arise on the day itself? What should we expect?
1: Right now, the big story is the robust turnout for the early vote and what's motivating that and whether it's a cannibalization of the Democratic vote on Election Day or a real sign of a surge that is going to benefit Biden. And we don't know the answer to that. But as we get closer to Election Day, it's going to be putting out fires, like some of the very examples that you cited, finding, learning about ballots with errors in them or absentee ballots that aren't making it back in time. And then once election night comes, who's having trouble finishing their count and what results are going to be available? And then of course, after the election, where the battles over the counting and where legal battles might arise, those are all the scenarios that we are preparing for. A decisive landslide victory on election day would, render a lot of these issues moot, but very few people are expecting a landslide in this country at this divided moment. It certainly could happen. It's happened before, but we're preparing for basically all possibilities.
0: All right. A lot to watch. Thank you for all you're doing to prepare our listeners. Amy, have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thank you, Allison. It was great to see you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? For any questions you have about voting and for more deep reporting on our voting systems and our electoral process, visit WashingtonPost.com elections. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Arjun Singh and Ariel Plotnik with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon.